Now, I've talked to a number of you the past few weeks, and it's not uncommon in a church family. I know some of you are going through suffering right now, suffering of different kinds. And if you're like me and you're going through the Bible again in the new year, some of you are probably in the book of Job. I think about that man, Job, everything he went through, lost his, his wealth, his workers, his health, and then every one of his children. And if you can picture him there in your mind's eye in that ash heap scraping, scraping boils. In the course of that book, he, he talks about the good old days before the suffering. I want you to listen to his words in Job 29.2. He says, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me. And who can blame him, right? Don't, don't we sometimes feel that way when we suffer? Like right now, God is not watching over me. Maybe he's busy somewhere else. Maybe he's forgotten me. Well, we're privileged as the readers of that book. We, we know something Job did not at that time. He knows it now, but not in the middle of his suffering. Even in Job's suffering, God was watching over Job. Satan had, had said Job will be unfaithful if he suffers. But God was there in Job's corner, rooting for Job to be faithful, to be faithful even in the fire. Now, I want you to think about your life in this present age. You ever look at the suffering in your life or the suffering around the world and if you're honest, maybe wonder, maybe have a, a doubt planted in your mind, has God taken his eye off the ball? What does the Lord say to the believer in the face of suffering? I want to share two things here. Number one, he says, I am with you now. I am in your corner. I am for you, not against you. I love the words in Hebrews 13, 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Why does he include passages like that? Because he knows you and I battle with fear in this world. Especially in the middle of our suffering. That's when they loom the largest. I think about something that happened yesterday. I was out at a duck pond with two, my two younger boys feeding the ducks. And, and our six-year-old had something happen a few years ago. We were at a park and a large dog was off the chain and ran full speed at him. And as he ran, he tripped on a rock and smashed his mouth open, blood everywhere, and we're working with him to, to get comfortable around dogs again, but we're down there feeding ducks, tons of ducks having a great time, and then this dog comes up, and all of a sudden, little Luke's so distracted by the dog, he's so afraid of the dog, he stops throwing the bread, and he runs to me, and, and it wasn't until I picked him up and put him back in my arms that he was able again to, to focus on the fun we were having, and I was thinking about that. That could be a picture for us as we go through fears and 
and especially in the face of our own suffering in this world, it may not be literal dogs, but there, there are things that hound us, fears that hound us in this life. There's a hound of discouragement that comes at us. There's the hound of, of disillusionment. Like sometimes we wonder, why has God chosen to allow this trial to go on as long as it has? Sometimes it's the hound of condemnation as the enemy barks in our ear. How could God love you? But then we come to promises like this and we run to our Abba Father and he picks us up. And guess what? Again, we're able to focus on passing out the bread, the good news that that we're here to spread. He says, I'm with you now. I'm in your corner. And the second one, Jesus promises in the face of our suffering. I am coming again. I am coming again. We're going to focus on that one because today we begin six weeks of talking about Christ's second coming in Matthew 24 and 25. And this morning he begins by talking about suffering. Talking about the suffering that will precede it in this world. But even as Jesus talks about suffering, I believe his heart is one of encouragement for his children. Encouragement that says salvation is coming. Be faithful. Don't give up. See, I think the the truth of his second coming was never meant to be this ethereal thing we just talk about and doesn't touch down in our daily life it's meant to encourage us to faithfulness now it's a mindset that that I think we should adopt as believers I call it eyes on the sky boots on the ground what what if we lived out that balance today eyes on the sky boots on the ground or or a couple weeks ago as my boys were hoping for a snow day I thought about it like this, like what if we waited for Jesus' return like, like kids waiting for a snow day? You know, keep looking out the window, but make sure your homework's done. <laughs> if we could go with that balance. So with that in mind, I want to share a little context where we've been in the book of Matthew. We just came out of chapter 23, all those woes to the Pharisees, right? And I sum that chapter up as the king rejects the religious leaders of his day. And he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 as a result. He rejected the religious leaders of his day because they rejected him. Then you look to the end of the book, after where we're at right now, 26, 27, and 28, we're going to see that the king provides redemption through the cross and resurrection. But right where we're at in the middle of this sandwich, 24 and 25, the king gives his disciples a revelation of his future glory. And I want you to just put yourselves in their shoes. How important would this be for them? is they're about to see him arrested, beaten, and crucified. How very important would these words be for them and for us, the revelation of the king's future glory. I want to talk about our focus when we talk about the last days. This is an important matter 
as we set the tone for the next six weeks. Where does our primary focus tend to go when we think about the last days? If we're honest, does it not sometimes go to the what's and the when's and the how's? And that's part of it. That is part of it to be sure. Look at just at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The what's, when's, and how's is all part of it. But we must never forget that behind all the things, behind all the what's and when's is the who. The who. All scripture points to Jesus Christ. You see that even in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5.11, just one of many examples. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It is all about him. It's all about him. And Timothy Paul Jones reminds us that there are three main things that every believer of Jesus Christ must hold on to as we think about him. One is that Jesus is going to return bodily. He is going to return bodily. Two, he will bodily resurrect every human being. And three, he will judge every human being sending some to eternal life and, and eternal blessing and sending some to eternal death and damnation and suffering. We must all cling to those three things. A lot of differences when it comes to the timing of some of those things among faithful believers. But I believe something. Whatever your understanding of the timing, there's encouragement to be found here in these passages. There's perspective for us to gain as we wait, as we walk through this suffering world. And I want to view these passages, and I want to invite you to as well, as a lighthouse. A lighthouse on a, on a stormy sea. I want you to imagine Jesus as the, the captain of a ship on that stormy sea. And he invites us to ride along with him as he points us to the light ahead and steers us home. Discipleship with Jesus often started with a dialogue, as a talk with the guys. That's how a lot of the best discipleship happens. Life on life, as Frank's been talking about, at men's group, through relationships, Verse 24, chapter 24, verse 1 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you see some tragedy in, in these words. I think about the prophet Ezekiel who, who spoke of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple because of their disobedience back then. I see it again here. The leaders had rejected Jesus 
And he and the glory of God leave the temple. He was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, it was a mind-blowing structure, one of the wonders of the world in their day. Herod had, had gone to great measures to make this so. And they're saying, Jesus, check this out. Check this out, probably. Isn't this pretty awesome? Verse 2, he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This would have startled his guys, A, because they were so impressed with it, but B, these were massive stones, thousands of pounds, and Jesus spoke the truth. In A.D. 70, the Romans burned that temple. They pried those heavy stones off of one another and pushed them down into the valley below. Verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is the setting. He, this is a, a mount just outside the city looking down on Jerusalem. Some of you like to hike like Russ does, I know. We were up on Thumb Butte recently. I know you love it up there. You, you may imagine being up there and looking, looking back at downtown Prescott. Maybe a setting like that. They're up on the Mount of Olives looking down on Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives. That's an important place when it comes to the end times. I, I wonder, as Jesus sat there and talked about the end, if his mind wandered to an event yet future where he will stand there again victorious. Zechariah had prophesied it in 14.3, as the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Did his mind wander ahead? I don't know. But on this day, it says the disciples came to him privately, saying, and they're going to ask him two groups of questions. The first one is, tell us, when will these things be? That's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. We know it was A.D. 70. They didn't know that. That first question is answered more in Luke. We're going to focus more on the second group of questions. It's, it's related but different. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those are the ones we're going to zoom in on in Matthew. Now listen. Whether you believe as we go through this that Jesus is talking about the current church age in which we live or a future seven-year tribulation, a lot of these things he's going to talk about do reflect the seals in Revelation 6, if you ever do a comparison. Or you see a little bit of both, some overlap. There's application, application for us all. Suffering in six very specific forms is coming. In fact, if you look at our, our world today, you will see all of these. They all start with D to help us remember them if your mind works like mine. The first one is deception. Deception is coming upon the world. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. I'm going to pull verse 11 up to here. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, 2 Timothy 4. Paul was writing to a young man named Timothy, overseeing the church in Ephesus. Verse 2, he told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why this emphasis on Timothy teaching the word of God? Because the choose your own adventure church was coming. Look at verse 3. Paul says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to, to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Look around. Look around. I want to pass on something that I've heard said and I agree to be true. If your God only says things that agree with you, if your God never makes you uncomfortable, if your God never calls for your repentance, there's a good chance that your real God is you. That's what a lot of itching ears are looking for. How do we guard against this deception? Listen, diligently dig into the truth of the word of God. Proverbs 2 verse 3 says, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, listen, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you find silver and hidden treasure just, just lying on the ground? You're just out and about and, oh, sweet. No. You got to dig for that stuff. You got to sweat. You got to toil. Why would you do that? Because you know it's valuable. I think about what the prophet Jeremiah told God's people in chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. Now think about that. And I think there's, there are times in my life and in your life where our search for God and his truth need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit from kind of ho-hum to more like a heat-seeking missile. Like think about a, a heat-seeking missile, right? No matter how many twists and turns its target takes, it will not rest until it reaches its mark. Some of us need to go from casual to hardcore in our study of God's word and our desire to know him. I pray that's part of your 2024 mindset. May I be diligent in the word of God. Maybe it's joining the essentials class to go deeper with a group of other believers. 
deception's coming. Second, division in the world. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Think of the the 2,000 years since this was spoken, right? Countless wars. Look at the 20th century alone, two world wars. Today, I'd encourage you, if you don't, you may want to follow Amir Sarfati on Telegram. He's a Jewish believer who posts multiple times a day about developments unfolding at breakneck speed in the Middle East and around the world. Division. Third, disasters. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Think about this. Jesus predicted all this, and, and then he said, don't be alarmed. You might say, don't be alarmed. And you call Jesus an encourager. How in the world is all this talk of suffering encouraging? Good question. I think about it like this. What if he hadn't told us about the suffering? What if he just told us, guys, I'm victorious, I'm going to heaven, and I'm coming back someday? Wouldn't they and we be tempted to look around and wonder, hey, uh, did you overlook something? Or maybe he's not really in control. But listen, because he told them, because he told us, as it unfolds, We can see he is God. We can see he is God. He is in control. That's one of the purposes of prophecy in the Bible. Isaiah 46, 9. The Lord says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We can see he knew he is in control. And second, because he told us, when you see a brother or sister discouraged in their own suffering or the suffering of the world, you know what? You can take that brother or sister by the hand and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Remember, the king told us there were going to be days like this. Hold on. Hold on. It's like he told his guys in the upper room, John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I read those words, I always think about the princess bride. Remember what Wesley Told his young love, life is pain. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. I love that we have a Savior who's honest. But verse 8, he says something interesting. He says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Some of you all know about birth pains. (laughs) Think about the first pregnancy. 
right? You have those false contractions. They call them Braxton Hicks contractions, right? And listen, if you don't know what's up, nobody's told you, you think baby's coming now, right? Second, third pregnancy, after some experience, you, you know what's up. You, those come, you say, hey, it's not yet. Hold on. Hold on. Then the real contractions come, and they hurt. As Carolyn told me so. <laughs> you might even yell and, and scream and cry, and rightfully so. Rightfully so, but you're not alarmed because you know the pain is a necessary precursor to something wonderful at the end. You're going to finally meet the one you've been waiting for. Tie it all together. Birth pains. Discrimination against believers of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. My encouragement here, believer in Jesus Christ, is this, if you have not already, brace yourself. Times are changing quickly. Now you look at persecution around the world and in an honest look, if you rate it on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst. You look at places like North Korea or Iran and you say they're, they're at level 9 or 10 over there. I hope we're praying for our brothers and sisters in places like that. Here, maybe we're at 1 or 2, I don't know, but it's increasing. It's increasing. One, one just little example, I told you last week about C.J. Stroud. The man points to Jesus every chance he gets. After he beat my Browns last week, he did a post-game interview. You know what the first line was? I want to give all praise and glory to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he went on to talk about Houston. You know what NBC did when they posted that clip on X, what used to be Twitter? First line gone. Why? Why? You say, that's no big deal. I want to tell you about a local student here, a Christian student in a local public school, local. Asked to read a book in front of the class that had LGBTQ content. He said he would not. That young believer in elementary school was told that as a result, he would be left out of some of the holiday festivities at that school. Times are changing. Brace yourself. I want to encourage us as believers to be realistic. Be realistic. I, I think about those of you who are basketball fans. This analogy is not new with me, but when you're winning and the game's about to end, what happens? You expect fouls, right? The other team continues to foul you to try to extend the game. When the game's about to end, you expect fouls. I want to encourage you, if you're being fouled right now, look to the end of the game. Jesus wins. You win with Jesus. Be faithful. Be faithful. 
also want to encourage you to look forward to that day you meet him. If you're facing that right now at home, at work, wherever, I'm going to tell you something. When you see the nail-scarred hands of your Savior and he's welcoming you into his eternal kingdom, guess what? The exclusions and insults of others, even their beatings and their executions aren't going to amount to a hill of beans. It's all going to fade away. That's why over and over in the book of Revelation, we read verses like this, Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, endure, endure. Fifth thing coming is disloyalty. Many will fall away and betray one another. And hate one another. Some of you have felt that sting from someone you called brother or sister in Christ. Disloyalty in six. The final one, the dissolution of love. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. What I see there as the world gets crazier and crazier, it's just natural to go into self-preservation mode. Now, I have any bandwidth left for those outside, me and mine. Do you see it? Do you see it? What, what do we as Christians do in the face of these last two, disloyalty and disillusion of love? I want to encourage us to band together, to go deeper, to go beyond Sunday into each other's lives for real. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we need to encourage each other? Because it's discouraging out there. It's discouraging. See, it's when we go through the fire that we realize church is not a formality. It's family. It's family. Church is not optional. It's essential. Church is more than a service. It's, it's survival. He built us to do this together with him at the head. We need each other. And I hope you know what I'm talking about. I hope you have some fellow believers, maybe in this room, that when you really start going through it, you, you can go to them and say, I need your prayers. I need your help because I'm down. Who, who prays for you? Who do you pray for? Who can you be real with? Who can be real with you? I hope you have that in the church. If not, don't be afraid to reach out and let somebody know you need it. 
I hope you have that in your home. It's one of the beauties of a, a Christian family. I think about this, and I think about Martin Luther, the great reformer. His wife, Catherine, I don't know if you ever heard the story, how they ended up getting married. You know, he, he spoke truth where he saw God's word differ from the Catholic church at the time. He, he spoke it boldly, and a lot of people started to see that, that truth of salvation by grace through faith, and some of them were nuns. They made lifelong vows. They were in the convent. They, they grabbed onto this truth and they wanted out. Catherine, who would become his wife, was one of them. But how do you get nuns out of a convent? Well, she, along with 11 or 12 other nuns, were put into barrels, put onto the back of a horse cart, and hauled out of that convent. Eventually, Martin Luther ended up marrying Catherine. And she proved to be a great encouragement to him. He, like all of us, went through his very low moments in the battle. And he was going through one prolonged state where he was depressed and, and disillusioned. Well, Catherine, his wife, decided to do something about it. She, she, while he was gone, dressed all in black. Dressed all in black. And, and he came home that night and he said, who died? And she said, God, he said, you foolish thing. This is, why this foolishness? She looked at him, looked him in the eyes in love and says, it's true. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. Her therapy worked <laughs> and Dr. Luther cheered up. I think about that, that encouragement there. And as I was reading that story, I realized that her birthday, January 29th, though it was 1499, is the same birthday that Carolyn has. And I also read that because of the way she encouraged him, Martin Luther called Catherine, Kitty, my rib. Kitty, my rib. So I, I said, Carolyn, do you mind if I call you Carolyn, my rib? And she gave me that eye roll and smile that only a, an honest wife that loves you can give you, saying that I, I love you, but you're a little crazy. <laughs> when I said, can I call you Carolyn, my rib, but I can't tell you how many times, how many times she's done the same for me. She and my family and some other extended family and friends this week were, were that way for me. I went to my family at home and I said, it feels like it's piling up on me. It feels overwhelming. Would you guys pray for me? And, and they did. Carolyn led those prayers. The boys prayed. And it was the next day I woke up and got an email with that verse from Habakkuk. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. But I'm so thankful for Carolyn. I'm so thankful for my family at home, my extended family, my church family. I hope you have people like that. If not, re reach out for it. You say, is this just for us? Just in-house? No. It's that love that Jesus said would be a witness to others. Do you know that? John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. Now think about that. In a world where love is a very rare commodity, the church and our homes ought to band together to shine as a beacon of hope in the darkness. He closes with direct encouragement. Even as he talks about suffering, I see Jesus as an encourager. Two things. Number one, salvation is coming. Be faithful. Don't give up. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, some of you are going to ask, so I'll share. I believe this is direct encouragement to believers who will be saved during the tribulation. Those who live to the end of that seven years will enter physically into Christ's kingdom when he comes. But I also believe there's application for believers today. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And it's not so much if you endure, you will earn your salvation. That, that's not it. As much as this, be faithful because Christ is coming and he brings with him the completion of your salvation. So hold on. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. You say, I'm going through some pretty heavy suffering. That means those glories must be off the charts. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Salvation's coming. Be faithful. Don't give up. And second, spread the word. He says, my message is going to go worldwide. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And in case you're wondering, I, I believe again, this speaks specifically to a spread of his message during the tribulation. Do you know that even then, he, he desires men and women to respond in faith? But he has the same heart today. Ever wondered why he's waiting so long? <laughs> How long, O oh Lord? His coming is delayed for one primary reason. Second Peter 3, verse 4. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We see the reason in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all includes you this morning. Have you come to Jesus in faith and repentance to receive him as your Savior and Lord? I believe that trumpet blast that calls his church home could be at any minute. At any minute. Carolyn told me growing up, she went to a church service where someone talked about the rapture of the church, that trumpet call, and, and at the end of that, that message, they had somebody in the back with a trumpet. Blared on that thing. 
Can you imagine the hearts racing? <laughs> but what if the real trumpet sounded today? Would you be ready? Would you go? Whether it's the trumpet or the time of our death, none of us is guaranteed another second. I think about something in the ministry of D.L. Moody. October 8, 1871, the evangelist had his largest audience ever in Chicago. You know what his topic was that day? What will you do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? What will you do on that future day? with Jesus who's called the Christ. He said something that day that he never said before and would never say again. He was tired. After he presented the gospel, he said, let's gather together next week. You have a week to consider this. You'll have opportunity to respond. Ira Sankey, the musician, came up to sing, and even before the song was done, the sirens began to blare throughout Chicago. The great Chicago fire had begun. That very evening, hundreds of thousands of people were left homeless, and hundreds of people died. A few months later, he stood before an audience, and he said, I would give my right arm before I would ever give an audience another week to think over the message of the gospel. Some who heard that night died in the fire. If your time came today, are you ready? Do you have the hope in Jesus that we've talked about today? If not, you may be saying, what do I do? What do I do? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a Savior who tells us the truth we need to hear. I thank you for the encouragement he brings to believers as we walk through this suffering world. Thank you for not skirting around it, but for helping us brace for it. I pray for those in this room in the throes of it right now that you'd encourage them. Salvation is coming. Help them be faithful. Help them not to give up. I pray that you'd help us be those who spread that message of hope to a world that needs it. And I pray that if anyone wandered in here this morning, but this is their time to embrace the Savior of the cross and the Savior of the empty tomb, the Savior who sits next to you and will come again victoriously that you draw them home. That's a place of simple faith. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins on that cross. I believe you rose again. I've looked other places. They've left me empty. I look to you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my hope. Be my salvation. Bring them home, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.